This is the Bainwell Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are joined by special guest Mandy Smith, pastor, author, and speaker. She is a regular contributor to Christianity Today and Missio Alliance and a part of the Ecclesia Network. She and her husband, Jamie, a New Testament professor, have two kids. Mandy, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. We are in like such different worlds right now where I'm at. It's 4.21 p.m. as we record. For you, Mandy, it is 6.21 a.m.? That's right, and it's wintertime, too, so I'm a little rugged up here. Okay, so yeah, I was, so I, I did a quick little, like, I asked good old Siri, like, what the weather was like there, because we're, you know, having major heat waves over here in the States and many of our corners of the world over here, but you're 55 degrees. Yes, Ugh. so, which is really not so bad, and by lunchtime, it'll be, it'll be 70 or so, but the houses are not centrally heated. So when you get out of bed in the morning, it's 55. And when you get out of the shower, it's 55. So um, that's probably, that's actually why people had Ugg boots here um, originally, just to have them <laughs> for slippers in the house. <laughs> well, that sounds like heaven to me. So <laughs> it is really nice, actually. Well, why don't you maybe um, introduce yourself a little bit? Um, tell us about your family, your ministry, whatever you want to talk about beyond, you know, the the brief introduction I gave. Yeah. So I grew up here in Brisbane, Australia, and we left in 1989, actually, to study, thinking we'd be gone for about 10 years in the US and the UK. And then the thing that we had hoped to do here kind of closed around the time we were ready to come back and um, doors were opening up in the US. So we ended up staying for what we thought would be about two years and it turned into more like 20 years. So um, just a year or two ago decided that it was time to head back to Australia and partly because our parents were aging and wanted to be with them. I would not suggest an international move in the middle of a pandemic though. <laughs> so uh, it's been, um, it's not been a smooth landing just because of so many extra dynamics going on. But um, we are, I'm just today starting my new role. I stepped down from my role in Cincinnati in November. I was at University Christian Church, which is where Marty is now. And I'm so sad that right when he was coming, we were getting ready to go. Um, but yeah, I stepped down from that role in November. And today I am starting officially with St. Lucia Uniting Church, which is by the University of Queensland. So it's a very similar context to the one I was in by the University of Cincinnati back in the US. Um, so, and tomorrow we move into what they call the manse here, which is the um, rectory or the parsonage. And um, so really excited to be getting back into somewhat of a ministry and a, a rhythm again. Um, yeah, and my, my book just came out in the middle of all that too. So um, it's been an interesting season, but really excited to talk to you about that today. Yeah, of course. So you had a few months of overlap in Cincinnati with Marty. Uh, is that how you two met? Uh, or did you know about Marty or Bama or anything that beforehand? Or, or what was the connection there? I wish I could tell you I, w I had known all about Bama, but I, did, I didn't. He and um, some other folks from their campus ministry organization were praying about doing some work in Cincinnati and came and visited a couple of times. And um, we just really connected from the very beginning. And they um, prayed with me several times and prayed for our church. And there was just a really natural connection there. So maybe Marty has other ways to describe that. But yeah, he um, his family moved right around the time of the shutdown, if I remember right, Marty. And um, so started attending our congregation, but it actually wasn't really meeting much. So it was probably not a very um, fun time to be trying to get into a new community. Well, I'm sure my domestic move in the middle of a pandemic was better than your international one. It uh, it worked out okay. But I, I can remember meeting, um, we had been having these conversations. We had been setting up this prayer journey because Mandy's right. We were been we were, we were praying over opening a ministry there. At this point, I had no idea I was going to move to Cincinnati. Um, we were just there to pray. And in the course of doing all of our exploration, we had met this church right on the edge of uh, the campus. And it was from the same Stone Campbell Restoration Movement Brotherhood that we were from. So we started doing some digging. We also found out that they had this female lead pastor. And that really intrigued me. 
Um, and it didn't shock me to find out that there wasn't necessarily a ton of love around every corner of the world for that. <laughs> and I and and so we were set up to go to another congregation as a staff for church that Sunday. And I had one other person, and I said, you know, I want to go to this. I want to go check out this other church, and we'll let, we'll let the whole team go over there. I'm gonna I'm gonna go over here, and so uh, I gotta I gotta swing over there and meet Mandy and a. Man, it just felt like a really cool divine conversation and timing for her and timing for me. And I walked out of church. Um, man, this may man, it's good. this may catch me. This may get me emotional. I walked out of church that morning, uh, and I just like had this like sigh of, oh, that was so good. And I immediately was struck by how rarely I feel that way when I leave church. Like I'm usually so frustrated and so, uh, frankly, sometimes disgusted when I leave what happens. On, and that was such a rare, and I was like, oh man. And then I got to come back and keep talking with Mandy. And every time I would have, I had that same feeling. Like that wasn't a fluke. Like that was, um, and it didn't take very long right after that trip where we, there was just a lot of variables. And one of them being the congregation and, and Mandy herself that, I don't have that many. That's a short list. And I kind of perked up and paid attention and said, I wonder if there's something that God has for us. And I didn't know that by the time we got there, uh, she would transition out. But I I will say this by way of introduction. One of the things I've always loved about Mandy from the very first moments that I don't meet very many lead pastors of congregations. I might meet other spiritual leaders or authors or thinkers or whatever, but if you're a a leader of a congregation, you are often sucked into this world of production, of church growth, of the industrial church complex, and uh, and that produces all kinds of um, of things. and And Mandy just never had that. She is, she was, she is like rooted in spiritual discipline in. Uh, maybe I should say spiritual practice of a different kind of awareness. Um, It's even kind of hard to articulate. It's so odd and it's so different and it's so refreshing to hear a pastor more concerned about Sabbath and presence and hospitality than church growth. Uh, And that was just, uh, so by way of introduction, that was my experience meeting Mandy and um, got me to move across the country. She didn't tell me she was leaving, but uh, <laughs> and it, it was great. It was it was it's been a very divinely um, orchestrated move for our family. Yes, so. Amen. And I know that your presence there is is a blessing to the congregation as well. So it it definitely was a good thing on many levels. We God definitely has a way of working things out. And if He would have told us how it was going to work, it probably would have changed things. So He just smiles and does His thing. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mandy, you've you've written lots of things, um, and we want to spend most of our time today talking about that new, most recent book, Unfettered. Um, but you also wrote a book that uh, I recommended on our Baymon Network before uh, a few years ago. I recommended the Vulnerable Pastor. Um, and what was the experience surrounding that book, the Vulnerable Pastor? We, we've talked about that before in some of our circles. Yeah. Are, are there? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you write these other books, are they like, and I'm kind of selfishly asking this question as I kind of begin to write some of my own stuff, are, are, do you see them as like literary children to you? Do you love all your books? Uh, how does that, does that fade over time? Talk about those early writing experiences and what that's like. I think for me, uh, writing is a way that I try to figure things out for myself. Most, all of my writing articles and books comes from a burning question or uh, a pain or a, a, like even a glimmer of a joy that I just, it feels like there's something hidden in there that I need to figure out. And as I do figure it out, I think, well, maybe I know other people are asking similar questions. Maybe it would be a blessing to them to share this in some way. There was a book I, I wish I had had to read. I wrote this because I didn't have that book. <laughs> maybe other people are feeling that way too. And actually, um, I do this as a part of my exploration too. Like as far as I'm concerned, when the book is finished being written, the conversation and the exploration isn't ended. It's just the beginning in some ways because you then get to hear from other people as they read your words 
what's going on in them. And so that's, that's a continuing way for me to explore this concept or this idea or this joy or this pain. And so, um, I've had to, I've had to wrestle with that because I do hunger to hear back from readers. And I worried like, is this an ego thing? And maybe it is a bit that, but I think it's mostly, I just long, I think there's a kind of worship that happens when you hear that the little glimpse of something that you had is not in your imagination and that it's something in the spirit that's also working in other people's lives, even though it may look very different in their lives, there's still this something that's resonating. And, um, and so it, it just makes you feel less alone when you come to see, okay, God was in that and, and other people are a part of that. So being a nine on the Enneagram probably probably has something to do with that. Like it just helps me feel like I'm a part of something bigger than myself. And that's a really good feeling. It sounds like maybe when you see these pieces, these writings, uh, you see a point of a part of your journey. Like you see a part of mm-hmm. what you were going uh-huh. through, a part of your history, a little bit of your story. Yeah. So you've been pastoring a church for some time. You're going into another church now. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done lots of speaking. Um, and I'm wondering like what, so you talked about the the books being like an exploration. So are the books like where you process these ideas initially and then those feed into your, your ministry and your speaking? Or is it more your ministry like brings you to a place and then you have to explore. And then, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's not just a one-way street, but what's the interaction and kind of what is it, how does it work between all of these different things that you do and and which of them kind of gives you maybe the most joy or the most fulfillment or, or whatever. Hmm. Um, I think it's a bit of both. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that also um, we find ourselves at a moment in the church's history where nothing is really a given, you know, everything's in upheaval right now. And, um, I think it's Phyllis Tickle who talks about every 500 years, we have a rummage sale and we're, we're due for one. Like, I think we're in the middle of one, um, that the church has this huge upheaval and, and transformation. And that was happening even before COVID. And I think that's just accelerated things. And so, um, the process of figuring out what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church leader, um, there's just so many things that aren't givens, you know, that we are having to think about and be open to the spirit in. And so that can be a really lonely process. And, um, so I think it's, it's definitely a conversation and that includes when I go to speak, I even love the opportunity to test my ideas on people and get feedback from them and then listen to other presenters at the same events that I'm speaking at. So I think, I think it's all a part of a big, process of watching. And, um, I've actually been reading recently the passage in Acts where, you know, Paul's walking around and notices the, the idol to the unknown God. And I just love the thought that he's just walking around the city, looking for clues that God is already there and that people are already longing for God. And I guess in some ways we're all all doing that all the time, just looking for clues and trying to make sense of them. And whether that's clues, in our personal faith and family life and neighborhoods or our ministries or the church at large. Um, maybe that's part of my nine tendencies too, is uh, trusting that the same God is at work in all of those places in my relationships and in the church and in the broader world and in my own heart. And they don't always seem to be the same God. It's hard to figure out sometimes how they're one, but I think ultimately a the writing and the speaking and the living my own faith and the ministering in a congregation are all a part of just trying to make sense of how God is one in all those places. That's good. I like that. Um, you, you've recently moved uh, back home. I put that in quotes. Um, mm-hmm. Probably has been a long time since you've been yeah. home, home in this regard, but I'm sure, especially by reading your books, uh, sounds like that. That has always been home for you, and I'm sure it feels like you're back home. Um, but you're, you're back home in Australia. What, what has that transition been like? And in particular, I want to give you the opportunity. Is there anything that as you transition and you talk about moving in the middle of a pandemic, is there anything that you're trying to, obviously you have a new congregation and that's going to take a ton of your time. Is there anything else you're trying to, um, start, begin, dream about anything that you, uh, are trying to promote that we could help spread the word about anything like that as you transition yeah. back home to this new place in this new chapter? Yeah, I'd love that. Um, 
So there's a question that, that I raise in Unfettered, the most recent book, that I think is my next question. And it's related to how we understand and share the gospel. Oftentimes churches will uh, give people a lot of pressure to be more evangelistic, but I feel like sometimes we have to start even back further, like dig deeper than that to say, do people even know what the gospel is and is it even good news to them? Because I think that the ways that Western Christianity has described the the good news often doesn't actually feel like good news. Um, I was just hearing about Spurgeon's wordless book. I was not familiar with this. Are you familiar with the wordless book? I think maybe I've heard it in passing, had no idea what it was referencing, so no. Yeah, it's uh, an evangelistic tool in Spur- from Spurgeon, so some time ago, where they just broke it down to colors <clears throat> instead of words, and it starts with black. <laughs> so it goes black, red, white, gold. So it begins with sin and brokenness, and then, of course, goes to Jesus' blood, and then purification, and then the gold of heaven. And, um, and you know, there's the cross-shaped bridge um, that also has been used. And I that these things might have their purposes, and there's something scriptural about them to some degree, but I think they're really limited. And um, Tim Keller has written in the last year or two about the, the challenge that we need people for the way that we normally understand how to share the gospel, it um, it usually starts with, you know how you're a horrible sinner. <laughs> you know you know how you feel far from God because you've sinned. Mm-hmm. And so it assumes people already believe in God. It assumes people have a sense of a moral code. And if they don't, then we have to be beginning with convincing them how horrible they are and how far they are from God. And so no wonder people don't want to hear from Christians. So um, I've actually come to see that there are places that are not often invited to theological conversations where the gospel is actually good news experienced by human beings in ways that connect with really with actual felt needs and i think that's even one of the problems in western christianity that we are afraid of trusting that the that the good news or that the bible actually relates to our daily lives and to real needs that we feel and so um i share one way that i've come to understand it, which actually feels more meaningful to me in the book I share that. But I want to, I wanted to hear what other people are experiencing and, and other metaphors that people use from different cultures and traditions and experiences. And so I'm organizing an event, an online event for August 5th in um, with Missio Alliance called The Whole Good News. And um, it's hard to, it's hard to describe this without it sounding like the beginning of a joke, but we have um, someone with cerebral palsy. We have um, an orthodox uh, podcaster and thinker and writer. We have a, um, a Native American uh, grandma theologian. We have um, an African American theologian. We have uh, Asian American and uh, also a Latina. And so uh, I just want to bring them all together in one space and say, uh, what are the metaphors that help you understand the gospel and how does it actually connect with your life? And I'm asking them to find a way to share that brings together theology and testimony so that it's a, a lived experience of faith. And then there'll be lots of space built in for participants in the event to um, to just sit with what they're hearing, to respond, and um, there'll be breakout rooms with different ways to respond through movement or listening to music or silence or conversation to just invite the whole person to be experiencing the good news. And um, so we don't even know what's going to become of this conversation, but I've already begun to see uh, really beautiful ways that um, intersections are happening between the different stories. I was in the conversation the other day with um, the Orthodox woman and the Native American woman, and, and there were crazy ways that their traditions actually intersected and and talked about the healing of all creation, for example. So um, that's the whole good news. It's um, You can find it if you Google it. It's on their missioalliance.org website. And um, 
the tickets are, um, I don't know when you're going to go live, but the, um, the early bird rate finishes in just a couple of days as we're recording. So, um, it's, it's not an expensive event, but it's going to be a really great transformative conversation that I'm looking forward to. So that was probably a long answer to your question, but I'm really excited about it. So I hope people will participate and, um, find a way to, um, to just have their imaginations opened and their energies for mission renewed. Yeah. Uh, uh, worth it. If it was long, it was worth it. Uh, as you talk about <laughs> good news and if that doesn't resonate with our listeners, I mean, that is exactly uh, the kind of stuff that we talk about all the time. So that felt very, very amenish. I was giving all kinds good. of emojis in my introverted self. <laughs> <laughs> we will have a link to it in the show notes. So great. Uh, I have looked at it. It looks really good. So if you are listening in the first couple of weeks uh, after this episode publishes, definitely participate if you can. Love it. Okay. So let's talk about this recent book of yours, uh, man. That's why you're here. Um, let's talk about unfettered subtitle, imagining a childlike faith beyond the baggage of Western culture, all kinds of Bay ma things in that. I love that. Um, <laughs> And now I we we've been plugging this book kind of here and there, and I've I've had a handful of people, a handful of friends get it. Everybody has like like positive things to say about it. There's been a few people that have gotten back to me. They're like, "Man, that book has wrecked me," and they mean that in a good way. Um, but as that as this book, you're now a couple months out from uh-huh. uh, when it released. Uh, how what kind of feedback are you getting? How are you feeling? What's that like to be yeah. a couple months away from releasing a book? Yeah, it's always strange because you trust that people are reading it out there. And since my part of my motivation is to have conversations, because it wrecked me as well. Like I, I've spent the last five years trying to figure out what on earth God was doing <laughs> in my life and rewrote the stinking thing four times. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of wrecked me too. So somehow it feels really good to hear that it's wrecking other people. <laughs> um, but in a good way, like to say like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not imagining this. Right. And it's the same spirit at work in all of us. But yeah, I am, I am actually being really moved by some of the ways that people are saying, man, I'm just taking this really slowly and I am, doing all of the reflection times and and it's just you know so much stuff like some real depth in there I had one friend who's doing a book club um send me several photos of the ways that the book is getting wrecked too because they're taking it with them everywhere and everybody in the group had some kind of spill (laughs) (laughs) Um, or like, you know, why one had wine, one had coffee, one had fingerprints from kids, Cheeto fingers. And (laughs) so I think that's probably a good sign. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. From the, from the very beginning, even the, um, I don't even know what we call these, but the quotes that, that are on like the inside cover talking about it. Oh yeah. So see Christopher Smith, he says, it is a much needed book and at the same time, a dangerous one for one cannot read it and remain unchanged. And then the very first line of the foreword by Walter Brueggemann, a name that is very familiar to Bama listeners, do not, dear reader, take up this book unless you intend to be changed. And, uh, yep, <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's encouraging because one of my concerns with writing it was that the whole book is talking about other ways of learning in addition to, not instead of, our thinking, because that usually is our main way of engaging in Western Christianity. And I realized the irony that I'm making people read a book in order to consider other ways of learning. So um, I'm really, really blessed to hear that it is actually transformative in in the more whole sense. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, chapter two was one that I have highlighted uh, a lot, Mandy. It was one of my favorite chapters. Uh, you identify some of the barriers that get in the way of rest and our listeners are going to know how big of a part rest and Sabbath plays mm-hmm. in our conversation, our teaching, our hermeneutic, trusting the story, that whole concept. But you talk about all the barriers that get in the way of rest. And I found it helpful uh, and refreshing to just uh, have somebody say out loud to write down on paper and articulate some of those things that maybe we don't uh, talk about you talked about uh, intellectual concerns, and I was like, "Oh goodness, that's me." Uh, theological concerns. It felt like you were reading my journal, actually. Uh, power <laughs> concerns. Good gracious, existential concerns. Um, I loved. Uh, I resonated with all four of those very directly. Mm. Where do you think, uh, Mandy? This 
excessive need to check. Like we need to check our rest. Like, okay, there's rest, but I got to check it. Um, yeah. I always have, where do you, where do you think this excessive need comes from and, or, uh, why is it so powerful that we, mm-hmm. we have such a hard time embracing this concept of just resting and trusting? Yeah. Amen. So I should say, too, that this involves rest in the usual way we think of rest with taking time off or Sabbath keeping. But I also just talk about it in terms of resting from our control, resting from our needing to run the world and the kind of abiding in God kind of rest. And so that can just be taking a moment, taking a breath to remember God is ultimately carrying everything. Um, that can be prayer. That can be walking and remembering God's God's the one who's got it. Um, so it's including our usual sense of rest, but just the, just the kind of, switching tracks from from being in charge of everything and kind of resting from our own deity, which I think Sabbath keeping mm, mm. in the truest sense, you know, actually taking a whole day off has been the biggest place for me that has taught me to rest from my own desire to be a God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why God created Sabbath in the first place um, because we can't do anything that day and we have to trust that he is carrying the world and you know, I know you know more about this than I do, that at the end of Sabbath, traditionally, there is a um, several different rituals that they do to remember that, you know, they pour the wine into the cup and it flows over as a memory that we want the sweetness of this day to flow over into all of our lives. Um, and so uh, to get back to your actual question, um, I think that there there are strongholds at work that tempt us to be God, tempt us to think that it's all up to us, whether it's our work or our parenting or our ministry or just carrying our own life and our own, um, what pe- our opi- people's opinions of us and our productivity. And, um, and I would have to say that there are some things in Western culture and, and theology and traditions that, um, actually encourage those (laughs) tendencies in us. Uh, So it's not just a a spiritual thing, but there's a cultural reality at work there too that actually tells us uh, if you stop, the world will fall apart. If you stop, people will will lose regard for you. If you stop, you'll be a failure. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's extra hard in addition to our own temptation when, when the culture around us is, um, is actually kind of harping at us as well. I, I use this, this is a tiny little um, uh, clue of this that I think it's holes. There's one particular kind of cough drops that I will not buy and I think it's holes um, <laughs> because on the wrappers for each candy, you know, they have little individually wrapped ones, um, they're all like suck it up, get over it, don't be a baby. I mean they don't use those words. But they're basically, they're not saying like, oh, you're sick, take take time to rest. They're all really kind of um, interesting uh, telltale signs on a very macro, a very micro level of the way that the culture is. I love that. It's like an anti-product placement. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Do not buy holes cough The drops. anti-Bema <laughs> cough lozenge. Um No, as you were saying that, I kept going back to episode one. I mean, some 220 episodes ago, and we chatted about Sabbath. And one of the things that we noted was there's obviously the day, uh, the observance, the weekly observance. And yet in the narrative, it's that seventh day that lacks a refrain. Like it doesn't have a closing. Like there's always Mm. evening and morning the first day, evening, morning, second, third, fourth. Oh, I like it. And yet when you get to the seventh, there's no refrain. It's And some of the rabbis speak to – it's almost as if this day is – there's this ongoing invitation. It's not just Saturday or Sunday or what. It's this – you can always step into this rest because it's it's the greater reality that everything else is bathed in. So Mm. I love how you started by saying, well, first of all, it's not just a practice. It's Mm. a constant invitation to let go of control, to let go of ego, to let go of all those things because that – that Sabbath day isn't just for that 26-hour period. It, mm. It's something that we're always invited. I think the book of Hebrews, let us not miss that invitation to enter his yeah. rest because yeah. that invitation still stands. And uh, I think 
Very insightful. Yep, absolutely. And there's, there's something that we will only learn by the discomfort of that. So many people I know say, oh, how, how do you have peace or how do you, um, have rest or whatever. And, um, you know, I'm as much of a performance, uh, <laughs> a junkie and perfectionist as anybody else. And it's, it's through the discomfort of giving God the church and the world and my family, um, for a day that makes me have to trust that when I take it back up, I'm still only taking back up a little bit of it. And that he ultimately still, I mean, anything I do is still dependent on his sustenance of me too. <laughs> Any gifts I have, have come from him anyway. My body works has come from him. So ultimately, even when we think we're doing everything, we're still so incredibly dependent. Yeah. I love that. Brent, what do you have? So the, um, the, the ministry that we're, the larger ministry that we're part of Impact Campus Ministries, we do a practice once a month called a per- personal retreat, Jay. And I had kind of gotten lazy in the midst of the pandemic uh, as far as like getting out and actually retreating. I would just kind of spend my time in the same space that I always was. And so this this last week, I decided I needed to mix it up a little bit. So I drove two hours south and... Um, went to the small town and then went a few miles out of there, kind of up into the mountains a little bit, um, partially for the cooler weather. Um, but I'm, I'm in the midst of reading your book at this point and I I read for a while in the car and then I, I get out and I realize that I'm like 20 feet from this Creek and I walk over to the Creek Mm. and all of the noise of everything around me, it was just so loud the creek and Mm -hmm. everything else just kind of melted away and I'm continuing to read and there's, there's bugs all over the place, but they're not really bothering me or whatever. And then all of a sudden this one bug like flies right in front of my face. And so it it makes me look up and I see this dragonfly in front of me and it lands on the log in front of me and is there for a few seconds. I glance away briefly and then it's gone. And it's the most beautiful dragonfly I've ever seen. Mm. And I'm like, what is happening here? I'm having this like mm. transcendent spiritual experience with a dragonfly. And and your book totally spoke to everything mm. that I was experiencing because I, I absolutely felt stupid. I was trying to explain it to Marty this morning. I'm like, this is so like uncomfortable for me because of my personality type. Uh, but, but I remembered uh, a quote from your book. You said... I had not, I think you were talking about, um, your moment with the geese, Mm -hmm. but you said, I had not expected that this whimsical waste of time might lead me into deeper communion with no less than the creator of all things. And Mm. so I'm just sitting, (laughs) I'm sitting at this Creek and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this whole thing. But I, I was surprised how quickly, like just over the course of a few days, like I was able to recognize this spiritual prompt and I don't even know what it means. I don't like like nothing has come of it necessarily that I know of. Uh, but I'm wondering, like you've been on this journey for quite a few years. What are those spiritual prompts like over the course of time? Like, are they easier and easier to recognize and tune yourself into? Or is it kind of in waves where, where the prompts are just so apparent and so clear for a while, but then, you know, for, for another time, it's like, there's nothing what, what is that mm. like for you? And, and how do you kind of, mm. what do you do with that? How do you get through it? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I would say something totally came of that moment. Maybe not the kinds of things we're usually measuring or looking for, but if you had an awareness of God's holiness and of the holiness of your own existence and of all creation, that's a pretty big thing, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think it is a discipline to have that childlike spirit and awareness and openness all the time. I think this is one of the the biggest disciplines that I want to um, give myself to is um, to let myself be interrupted because those things rarely come when we're doing, you know, when we're, but they don't always come when we're looking for them. Sometimes they come when we're in the middle of doing so-called important things. And, um, you know, Jesus himself says, consider the lilies and consider the birds. And I think we think that's some kind of hallmark sentiment. But what I think he's doing is 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 not saying that's just a metaphor, although there are beautiful metaphors that God uses from our engagement with creation. Um, 
they're also a reminder that the kingdom of God is already flourishing, that that dragonfly had everything it needed and it was embodying abundance by just the beauty of itself. Um, and, and so, you know, there was times when I was living in Cincinnati and there was, I was on a big hill that we lived on and there were hawks that just glided on the updrafts on that hill. And, um, so many times when I would walk and look over the city and I would just feel so overwhelmed by the task before me. And, you know, ministry is incredibly overwhelming. No human being can actually do it. I'm convinced of that. Um, and I would just look at those hawks and, you know, sometimes I'd remember the passages in, in scripture about hawks being used as a metaphor or eagles. And, but also just on a different level, I would use them to remind me that that hawk is, is flourishing in the kingdom of God. And that hawk is just looking for its next mouse. It's not anxious. It's motivated by its hunger. Sure. But um, it's just being a hawk and living and flourishing in the kingdom of God. And that same peace and awareness is available to me as well if I just open myself up to it. And so um, I think a part of it is not forcing it. That's even even the anxiously seeking God moments and the anxiously forcing things to make sense and to come when we need them is 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 kind of a part of that um, Western ego habit too. So to even just be okay when there's silence and to trust that God meets us in that as well, that he's with us in every experience of our own bodies. You know, we don't have to, it is easier sometimes when we get away from our daily experiences, as you say, but also, you know, if the spirit is a, is at work in our very bodies, then what does that mean for actually paying attention to those instincts in our bodies or how good the shower feels every day or how good the coffee tastes or, you know, those senses even are gifts from God. And um, so I think it's just a matter of turning our attention to them and giving them the value that they deserve. Okay. I'm going to segue into a later note that I have, because that's just it's so perfect. Um, Brent, it, it, even as he described that, he he talked about like how foolish you feel when you yeah. are become aware, like there's this thing. And by far the most convicting part of this book for me, Mandy, was when you started talking about your adultish self. You, you use these terms, mm-hmm. adult-like and adult-ish. Mm. And there's child-like and there's child-ish. And at one point you start talking about the adultish self, whom in your, in your story, you delightfully name Amanda the mm. the proper responsible the over concerned the over respectable mm-hmm. voice that critiques your childlike faith and i don't have like a like a more formal name my name on my birth certificate is marty but i'm considering naming mine martin i like that um <laughs> and i immediately knew him like mm. it was not an exercise you started describing it and it was like oh my goodness like that is exactly i hear it and even brent as he like we have this voice that has power over, um, you talk about resting, receiving, and responding. And when you encounter rest, there is this voice that immediately wants to jump in the way of the receiving and the responding. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so first I want to, I want to thank you for that tool. Like that was going to be very helpful, uh, for me to put, put a word, put a name, Mm -hmm. put a, a way to identify that and not just let it passively control Mm -hmm. what's going on. So, uh, I, I I thank you for that. I also wanted to say, like, help. <laughs> like, I have really, really cared what Martin says about me. Mm-hmm. Like, he holds um, shame behind his back, in a sense, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. ready to fling it at me at any moment. Yeah. Uh, so can you help uh, me and anybody else that's reading your book or listening? How do you, how do you deal with this? And obviously, you talked to that some in the book, but put it in some new words today. Like, how do you deal with this voice? What are the practices that you've found that are most helpful in putting Amanda in her proper place? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I even had to be careful how I wrote about Amanda because in the beginning it was um, kind of an adultish way to talk about Amanda even. And so Mm. even um, even the work of putting her in her proper place can somehow bring up that adultishness in us, mm. that ego that's mm. that's controlling things, which is, it's almost like 
when you try not to think about something, it makes you think about it even more kind of a mm, yep. situation. So um, probably the best thing to do that I've found is pursuing that thing that just really makes Amanda or Martin uncomfortable. And it's similar to what, like I said, with Sabbath keeping that we learn from the discomfort. And so uh, if there are prompts that lead you towards God and toward childlikeness, that that adultishness gets in the way of, the best thing for it may be not to fight with the adultishness, but to just pursue the childlikeness and not be um, surprised if it does bring up shame or if it does bring up fear. It's It's amazing how just being invited to pause and listen to the running water and watch a, a dragonfly would make Brent feel anxious or ashamed or like this is a waste of time. And I get it because that's that's what this journey um, included for me as well. And, um, and I think there's a spiritual kind of ramification to that. There is, that's our false selves as, my, as Thomas Merton would call it. Um, that's wanting so much to be in control, wanting so much to care about what everybody else thinks about us. And um, it keeps us bound up. And so I guess uh, trust that there is freedom in the discomfort and press into it and trust that as you do, um, you will be released from some of those lies. I like that. I like the word trust. We like that word trust around here. <laughs> we do, yes. That's good. Um Brent, do you have anything before I do a, a summary of just kind of my takeaways from the book or anything? Anything else you'd like to add? Um, well, so one of the things we talk about with Bama a lot is the difference between Eastern and Western perspectives. And you spend a couple of mm-hmm. chapters going over this. Um, how, what, what do we do for like, how, how do we make a healthy assessment and how do we engage these differences? Uh, and I mean, I'm wondering like in, in your time in Australia, um, do you being, uh, I, I know economically Australia is really connected, um, with Asia. And I'm wondering if any of that Eastern perspective kind of seeps through that way, or if there are other connections that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also know you mentioned, um, with the whole good news, you talked about having, um, some native American, um, speakers involved there. And I'm wondering if you've mm-hmm. gained some perspective from there and, and what do you do to, um, to recognize that perspective without necessarily throwing one out in favor of the other, but how do you, how do you join them together? How do you assess the two and, and just, you know, engage it better? Right. Yeah. So I think probably the way that this has come up for me is that, um, Australia is more on the socialist end of things. We're still a very capitalist nation and very Western in many ways, but um, moving back here has just reminded me how much we are very much aware of one another all the time. I'm not quite sure what that is. Maybe it's because we were convicts in the beginning and all the first settlers were chained to one another, <laughs> chained to one another or something. I don't know. But, um, but there are, but Australians just naturally have a sense of, um, of how they function and how that affects other people. Um, and so, for example, this is, a, again, a kind of a microcosm, but when we lived in the U.S., one thing that would always astound us is somebody is out, they find a great deal on a bed, they're out there in their little two-door car and they decide they're taking that bed home now, you know. <laughs> and um, I literally have seen people on various occasions driving down the road carrying a bed on the roof with one heart, you know, an arm out one side and an arm out the other side, holding it with their hands, driving down the, the road <laughs> and not thinking like, if I turn the corner and this falls off on somebody else's car, this could kill somebody, you know? And, um, and, and so I think a big part of that East West difference is to do with, um, individuality versus kind of a sense of, extended family or, or community and genuinely defining yourself on some kind of unspoken level as being a part of this bigger thing is a big part of how we understand faith as well. And so um, I talk about how oftentimes the way that we describe the gospel in the Western church is to do with very personal, like I personally sinned and I have enough power to make all these horrible mistakes that are going to do all these damages to the world and to God. And and it's, it's very much this kind of individualistic approach to God, which obviously we don't want to set aside our personal responsibility for responding 
faithfully to God. But uh, there are places outside of Western theology that um, that talk more. That's it's more of a guilt and release from guilt kind of metaphor, which often is is almost more of an engagement with an institution. So it's judge it's judge and um, courtroom kinds of metaphors there, which is not really as personal. Whereas in a, a West an Eastern kind of context, oftentimes it's more family metaphors. It's about you have been excluded from the family and or from the community and there is shame associated with that. You've lost face because um, you have done something that has made you shameful and um, outside mm. and God brings you back in. And, well, you know, that's the classic, um, the prodigal son kind of story of, of he was ashamed and he was welcomed back in against anyone's expectations. So I think that's a fundamental piece for me that resonates with my, um, with my, uh, Australian kind of experience. I also think that women and minorities, um, experience it, experience these things to have more of a sense of their connection to one another, maybe because we have to, um, and so I think that was a part of my experience too that made me resonate, even though I have been raised in Western culture and am very much shaped by that, um, to also find language that was connecting to the the on a shame side of things, which is traditionally seen as an Eastern thing. But I'm also learning that in uh, contemporary culture, especially folks engaged a lot with social media, shame culture is a huge factor too. So I think this is something that's growing in even within the West. Yeah, that's those are great assessments and and observations and insights. I love that. Um, well, I, I love the book, Mandy. We're gonna obviously link it here. I kept feeling like as I was reading it, like I read I read chapter two and I'm like, okay, that's gonna be the chapter that that's the chapter that that just nailed me. That's it. And then like every time I would get to the next chapter, I'd be like, oh well, <laughs> man, that that one got me too. And I just kept it just kept doing that. Like you. You went on to talk about not just the adult-ish self, you talked about the childish self, and you mm. delightfully again named her Mandy with an eye, with a heart over, you know, making the <laughs> I love that. So clever. Um, and and you talk about a theology of childlikeness, mm. uh, which again, we that's one of those things that is almost a religious cliche that we toss around fairly frequently, mm-hmm. but we never take any time to talk about what it is. Yeah. Like, what is the theology of childlikeness? Mm-hmm. Um and so, and then at some point in the book, I'm actually uh, pulling it up right now. You have this uh, diagram, this these four quadrants, where you've talked about um, on the on the horizontal axis, the relationship to powerlessness. Like there, there's there's the childlike self is unafraid to be powerless. We're okay with the fact that we're powerless, but but the adultish self is not okay. So we try to mm-hmm. try to be, and then this vertical axis is our relationship with power. So one is powerlessness and the other one is power itself. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's unafraid to be powerful and then somebody who's unafraid to be powerful. And it creates these four quadrants where you're really trying to be adult-like and childlike, this tension of the reality, the two sides of our coin. The rabbis talk about having you know, two, two slips of paper and one pocket is a paper that says you are the crowning glory of creation. And the other pocket is a paper that says you are nothing but dust. And the rabbis talk about always needing to know like which paper, Mm. this is the reality. This is the tension that you live in. Mm. And I I see that here, this powerfulness and this powerlessness. Mm. And I just really appreciate that quadrant because I can see so much of my dysfunction coming in the other three quadrants. When I become insecure in my power or insecure in my powerlessness, mm-hmm. um, boy, do I get myself into all kinds of trouble. So I thought those quadrants were super good. Oh, that's great. What struck me the most about that chart is that no matter where you are, you're still limited. You're still human. Yeah. You still have just this partial perspective of everything. And so to think like, oh, well, if I just act more this way or more that way, then, then all of a sudden I will break free from these limits. No, you're still limited no matter where you are. So, you know, where, where do you fall on the other side of it is what was what mattered. Yeah. The question is how comfortable will you become with that limitation? Well, what I normally say is you can get used to the discomfort of it. I don't think I'm ever going to be comfortable with the limitations, but we can grow to be um, used to the discomfort. Yeah. 
Well, man, it's one of my favorite books of the year. Um, we'll be linking it. Is there anything else that you're working on writing? You talked about the thing you have coming up in August. Is there anything that you're doing or excited about that we need to, like, what do we need to know? Here we are. Before we leave, what is oh. it that we need to know about Mandy Smith? <laughs> oh, I can, yeah, I can mention my website, which is where I talk about um, my previous book as well, which you mentioned, The Vulnerable Pastor. And um, I have a blog up there and some art and videos and various ways to engage and also some um, extra material for folks who do choose to read Unfettered. There's a playlist that I created with it and some um, practices um, and other and like a, a reading guide and other things that go along with that. So all that's on the website. It's called thewayistheway.org. Thewayistheway.org. I love it. And of course, we'll have that in the show notes. Um, Marty and I definitely like Twitter. So I'll, I'll just mention that you are Mandy Smith hopes on Twitter, Yes, uh, which is a, a great handle. <laughs> you got to be creative when your last name's Smith. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I would also say, um, for listeners to check out your Vimeo channel, uh, you have oh, yeah. um, lots of great conversations that you have with people there. Uh, I had a chance to watch a few of them before we, mm. we recorded and, and they're just uh, lovely conversations with people from all over the place. And, yeah. and so I would recommend that as well. Yeah, those were fun. Is there anything else you want to plug as far as where people can find you or the best way to be connected to your work beyond what we've already talked about? If you're in Brisbane, Australia, and you're looking for a church, then come find me at St. Lucia Uniting. Okay, perfect. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Oh, great. And I know we have, I don't know about Brisbane specifically. We don't have a group that we know of in Brisbane, but we do have um, a pretty big listener base in Australia, according to oh, great. our numbers. So um, you may end up talking to some people, which would be absolutely lovely. And I, I hope uh, people stop by. I would love that. Do it. Ever, all you Aussies, do it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EABCV. And uh, that'll do it for this episode. Mandy, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you, hopefully, and definitely our listeners again very soon. Mm-hmm.